Previously on Pinus Fine. Hello, this is Wally Sherold, and you are listening to Fine Just Fine on SyncBook Radio. And we just finished listening to a highly manipulated recapitulation of episode one. A variety of segments of the episode were chopped up into tiny slivers of audio, and then those little slivers were mapped across 128 virtual keyboard keys and fed into a sampler, which was then fed MIDI information, or musical instrument digital interface, of a composition called Aria de Capo by Johann Sebastian Bach. Or by today's standards, it's probably more commonly known as Hannibal Lecter's Dinner Music. And why am I telling you this? Well, you know, this show gets pretty wacky. It gets pretty out there at times with all the crazy sound design and sound effects and voice manipulation and music. And I've gotten some feedback from various listeners wondering what the hell is going on. And this time around, instead of shrouding the production in mystery, not that I've been actively shrouding, but this time around, for whatever reason, I feel compelled to explain the process. And well, there you have it some behind-the-scenes action in the middle of the scene. How very meta. So while this is officially episode two of Fine Just Fine, this is technically the fourth episode that I have produced. If we were to include the two-part pilot episode, or episodes... And I bring that up because this episode is unique for a few reasons. First of all, this episode is the first of many in the series that features a guest that is not a close friend of mine or colleague, but instead a public figure who has had a direct influence on my own work, as well as the very nature of this show. And of course, I am talking about... Dr. Eric McLuhan, a Canadian author, educator, and lecturer, if we must apply specialist labels, although I like to consider him rather as a quintessential generalist. Now, before we get to the conversation I had with Dr. McLuhan, and I should add that I have chosen to split our conversation up over two episodes, because while I usually am creating these episodes by editing down a very long discussion with my guest, uh, my conversation with Dr. McLuhan lasted just over an hour, and I think it was very good, and I would really like to include it in its entirety. And considering that the currency of the present seems to be someone's attention, the only 
way I can surmise that I will keep your attention for the duration of the entire discussion is to split it up into two parts. But what I'd really like to get at before we dive in is, well, if you're listening to this and you're familiar with the other podcasts featured on SyncBook Radio, it's probably safe to assume that you have some awareness of Dr. McLuhan or Marshall McLuhan or communication theory or the effects of media on society, etc. All of these ideas which came to the attention of popular culture starting in the early 60s with Marshall McLuhan's famous book, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man. And while it was pretty common, at least during Marshall McLuhan's time, that his philosophy and ideas were more misunderstood than understood, these ideas certainly have a lot of significance and relevance to right now especially in the age of digital information and the extraordinary pace at which information is distributed and manipulated and interpreted and regurgitated, etc. And I've had multiple conversations with people of all ages about these ideas. And when speaking with people who are quite familiar with them and understand them, sometimes I find that in my own case, and as well as with others I speak to, a conclusion is reached that basically says, I don't know how to apply this to my day-to-day life, or even more succinctly, so what? Why does this matter? And this is a common response to many belief systems and philosophical propositions. And over time, as I've grown older and spent more time with these materials, I've come to find that these ideas matter a great deal and have constant, urgent relevance to all of us. Why? because they are dealing with perhaps the most fundamental aspect of the human experience, and that is communication. In the first part of the pilot episode of this podcast, I talked about how one of the primary aims of this show is to explore the causes of miscommunication. And in technical terms, the primary cause of miscommunication is noise. Now, Noise, in my opinion, can be defined very broadly as any source of impedance or obstruction on a message as it is being transmitted from a sender to a receiver. This can mean a number of things besides just static. And this noise and this tendency for various cultures throughout the world, throughout history, to always be faced with some type of noise element that prevents them from accurately expressing their identity, their wishes, their dreams, their fears, their desires, their needs, etc., to another culture is the thrust of potentially every human conflict that has ever occurred throughout history and beyond. How many wars have been fought because of some fundamental miscommunication between two or more cultures? How many people have died because of some miscommunication? How many cultures have been entirely subdued or duped into believing some completely ludicrous ethos because that government knew about the power of information distribution and dispersal and knew how to manipulate it? Do I even need to bring up the most obvious example of this? No, I don't. But hopefully it's clear why this matters perhaps more than anything. But I think that the reason why too often many well-educated and thoughtful people when faced with these ideas and these observations of the effect that any kind of human innovation and technology, particularly human language and all of the tools and the means that we have developed to express ourselves over vast distances or right to our next door neighbor, far too often when people become aware 
aware of these effects, it becomes overwhelming because if you choose to, you can detect these effects in any facet of your day-to-day -day life because we are literally immersed in these innovations, in these media. And if one chooses to, they can identify these effects anywhere they look, and it's terrifying. How do we reconcile? How do we negotiate with this awareness when they can be found in the most trivial aspects of our lives to the most profound? It's scary, mainly because these effects are ubiquitous, and so are the media that cause them. And what is a common effect of anything that becomes so common in society and in culture? They become very easy to dismiss and even ignore. And that, in my opinion, is the great tragedy of our time. Gee, Wally, why so serious? Isn't that my purview? Let's introduce our guest. Dr. Eric McLuhan has over 40 years of teaching experience in subjects ranging from media, communication theory, literature, Egyptology, and culture. But overall, and especially in the context of this show, Dr. McLuhan can make the unique claim on being the world's foremost expert on the work of his late father, Marshall McLuhan, and this expertise originated in collaborations with his father on many projects starting in the mid-1960s as well as co-authoring several books, but also taking many of the questions first asked in many of the probes first proposed by Marshall McLuhan and applying them to the modern era as well as encountering new problems, new questions, and new probes relevant to the present. In our conversation with Dr. McLuhan there is particular attention paid to subject matter that originates from two books that Dr. McLuhan co-authored with his father, The Laws of Media, The New Science, and Media and Formal Cause. We also discuss topics from Dr. McLuhan's book, The Role of Thunder and Finnegan's Wake. Other books by Dr. McLuhan include The Human Equation and Electric Language. Special thanks to Andrew McLuhan for facilitating the recording of Dr. McLuhan while he spoke to us on the phone from his home in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. machine to rewind or anything. Mm-hmm. So, um, basically, this is, uh, you know, the, the whole the whole approach to these conversations is that we, we just have a casual conversation. We're not going to do, uh, or I don't, I don't really approach it like a more formalized interview necessarily, so. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I always found that I've been interviewed before, and I'm sure you have too. It's, it's, it's a weird experience. Well, it's a... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, it has a kind of formality about it. Uh, and conversations are always more productive, aren't they? They are. I, I tend to agree, for sure. Uh, the more casual, the better. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, I had a look at your advance, uh, uh, what your sort of policy paper or your uh, 
uh, general understanding of what the show is about and the aims and objectives. Oh, the the manifesto. The manifesto, yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad. That was, that was a bit of fun. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, somebody out there sure likes to sling the bull around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wrote that uh, the day before my first guest for kind of a, a little pilot run of the episode uh, came over for a talk, and I was expecting if anyone I knew would understand it, he would, and, and he didn't understand it at all. So. Oh. <laughs> I especially liked your idea of the ambigram. Oh, really? Thank you. Yeah, that's funny. That was the one point of confusion for, for my, my friend. Is familiar with, uh, you know, Douglas Hofstetter's work and, and the term. Uh-huh. But it, it seemed to me be, to be a very appropriate, you know, single term to encapsulate, mm-hmm. um, well, I think, you know, just the, the multi-layered or just the, the multi-dimensionality of, of any form of a symbol. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the, the point of confusion for him was that he was uh, limiting its usage to words themselves. Oh, oh, good heavens, no, it's... Uh present in all of the arts at every level. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and, and it even says so in its own definition, that it can be anything. It can, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I, I consider pretty much all media one giant ambigram. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. 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 I just uh, contracted to uh, produce a book for a publisher in England uh, about ancient Egyptian art. Oh, wow. Uh, which is all of it uh, uh, invested with ambiguity. That is, all their drawings are ambigrams uh, with at least two levels of meaning and understanding and, and two levels of presentation uh, because they work with silhouettes. Yes. And uh, a silhouette, you know, a silhouette, uh, uh, you see an airplane in the sky far off and all you can make, you can't make out details, just silhouette, and immediately you're asking, is it coming towards me or going away? Right. And it could be either, and you have to watch it for a while to find out. Well, that's an ambigram. Absolutely. And sh- I think it reminds me of just shadow puppets or uh, yep. some optical illusions I've seen that are mm-hmm. silhouette-based. I mean, that's some of the classic optical illusions of the two faces forming a vase. Sure. Um, uh, so is it a, a pair of faces or is it a vase? Or, or why in heaven's name couldn't it be both? Exactly. And I think, to me, it's funny you mention Egyptian hieroglyphs because the uh, episode that I actually just published this morning, uh, it goes into some of my own uh, thoughts on hieroglyphs as being... Well, I like to, to use the the analogy that it's kind of like the Egyptian zip file. (laughs) Zip file. Yeah, well, okay. What I'm doing is uh, unzipping the file. Exactly, okay. In my book. That's great. Now, I'm not talking about, in the book, I'm not talking about hieroglyphs, that is the writing system. Ah. I'm I'm talking about their their drawings. Sure, sure. Uh, You know, there's a kind of Egyptian portraiture that is absolutely unique. Everybody in the world knows the instant they see it, ah, Egypt. Yes. It's that strange, distorted, contorted figure 
uh, with the head facing one way and the shoulders another and the hips another and the feet are twisted around and and so on. You know the ones I mean. I do, I do. Yeah, and well, here's the funny thing. Those are all silhouettes. Right. And if you look at them properly, it, uh, for example, just take a paintbrush and blank out all the interior detail. And all you're left with is the outline. Right. And when you look at the outline, you can't tell if the figure is facing you or facing away from you. Mm -hmm. And they use that ambiguity, and it's a very delicate, a very precarious thing. Um, because if you fiddle with it at all, the ambiguity f falls right out. Um, so they're very careful to preserve it. And if you look at it the right way, that is the way they looked at it, then it begins to oscillate and to move. They invented animation ah. 4,500 4, years, 4, years ago. And But when you say animation and... and like, yeah, because the figures move. Well, it but it, it requires the observer to kind of impose motion on it as it as the observer sits there and... and no, it, actually, it's the other way around. You don't impose anything. Think of that airplane in the sky. Okay. You're not imposing a thing. You're just looking at a silhouette. Sure. And for, for quite a while, it's both things at once. It's both moving away and it's coming towards you. I guess what I guess what I meant by the <clears throat> observer is imposing the motion. It's it's when you comprehend the ambiguity of the silhouette, it gives it, it then reveals um, the the potential to move. Mm -hmm. and, no, it doesn't reveal a potential at all. Oh. It does move. Okay, I guess I'm. <laughs> see, <laughs> I guess I'm see, here's another thing. Instead of talking about ambiguity, why don't we just think in terms of uh, uh, getting two sets of meaning out of one set of lines, or two sets of meaning out of one group of words. Yes. That's, it, by any other name, economy. Yes. You're, you're getting double the uh, payoff mm -hmm. out of one investment. Absolutely. But the investment has to be very carefully managed. Now... When you talk about, so if you, you mentioned this duality of, of meanings and words, and, yeah. and obviously today in the way that words are used, you know, you look up a, a word in the dictionary and unless it's an obscure technical term or a more recently coined word, it's, it's not surprising to find several definitions in use, right? Obviously you know this. Um, and, yeah. but I'm wondering, and, and by the way, the language is always a couple of steps ahead of the dictionary. Oh, yes. No, that I'm aware of. I think that, that although that gap seems to be narrowing with, uh, with just the, you know, how quickly information can travel now. Uh, you're just getting old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're not the first to mention that. Um, but um, I guess my point is, is because I, uh, you know, I can't, can't help but think of your, your, uh, the tetrad of media yeah. effects okay. and this idea of retrieval. And well, talk about ambigrams, eh? Uh, the tetrad says there are at least four levels okay. to every innovation. Right. And Not just one, but at least four. The tetrad is a group of four things, whatever they may be. Every innovation does at least four things. 
understands or amplifies or enlarges something that's already present on the ground, as it were. And it simultaneously displaces or sets aside something that was there before. Every innovation also, if pushed to an extreme, or, or if you push this new event far enough, it will reverse its properties. It will change its characters. And we settle on these three as basic things that apply to all media. A little later we expand it into all human activities, all human innovation. The fourth one is retrieval. Every innovation brings back into play something that's been gone for a long time. Only it brings it back in a new way. It doesn't come back on its old terms. It comes back now into a new world. So it's reinvented. What is it? And those are the four. Because we had four, we call them the tenth a group of four. We figure that in four laws, at least as a beginning point, provided a key to understanding media. And with that, to understanding changes in our world and culture and uh, our day-to-day -day activities as well as global organization. Because they give you a handle on how changes are run up. They give you a place to look and a way of understanding. Great example, I think, that speaking of economy to kind of um, to talk about this tendency is the word or is the recent uh, adjustment of the definition of the word literally. Okay. Or how about the word literacy? Or literacy, sure. Um, but um, because it's well, in the case of the word liter literally, it's now been considered, or I believe, I think it was last year or the year prior where Oxford officially included the informal definition of literally to also mean figuratively. Oh, well, technically, I guess that's accurate because uh, un unless you have the literal level, that is the letters themselves on the page, mm -hmm. Uh, without that, you have nothing. But with that, you have at least three or four kinds of meaning right. available. Now, I'm wondering, though, is that is that is the phenomenon that the word literally has been so misused in, in, in common, in, 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 you know, just dynamics, uh, that, that is that a form of the reversal law of, or the, of the tetrad? No, I think it's a form of retrieval. Uh-huh, okay. Because, because in the Middle Ages, uh, there were four levels of meaning uh, in every text. Okay. Uh, one was the literal. Uh, the second was the allegorical. Mm-hmm. The third was the moral. And a fourth was the mysterious or the, the mysteries or uh, the spiritual. Uh, and this this fourfold meaning was present in every word and every syllable and every story and so on in um, the New and the Old Testament. This was their approach to interpretation. And when you say they, who is? I mean, this was this a formalized approach that was taught, or yes, okay, it was, uh, and that continued all through the Middle Ages, right up until oh, about the 18th or 19th century, in most places. And it's, this is in in um, theological study, or was it specific? Well, it, it was first practiced and used on the poets in uh, the Greek uh, world. And uh, <clears throat> all through the Middle Ages, the church kept 
reading of the poets alive as a, a place to go learn how to uh, interpret texts, how to read texts. Okay. So they'd learn in one set of texts, and then they'd bring that learning and apply it to the scriptures. Hmm. And it was, yeah. is this related to, like, the, the trivium approach? or? Uh, yes. Okay. One branch of the trivium. And that would be rhetoric? No, that would be grammar. Oh, okay, interesting. I, I, okay. Well, grammar is the uh, Greek word for which the Romans translated it literature. Entaxi. Because the word gramma in Greek means letters. Kala. And litera in Latin means letters. Callide, recte, ut cognici. So a grammarian was a literary man. And a literary, a literary man or a grammarian had to be able to read and interpret any text in any language at any level about any subject. He had the tools. Okay. He had learned how to interpret and to read. And not only the uh, the written text, but also what they called the Book of Nature. Nam liber de mirem naturae. So, and the Book of Nature had a number of levels as well. Uh, four levels, as it happens. <laughs> of course. <laughs> the number four keeps coming up for some reason. Four four two four 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 two four 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 two four seven four five four 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 two four 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 of interpretation in the book of nature are the four levels of causality. Right. As you say in your in your in your paper on formal cause. Um, yeah, that's one of them. There was formal, efficient, material and, and final. Final, right. Four kinds of cause. Um, and that was the basis of the sciences. Okay. So um, now could you uh, give a uh, an economic definition of, or, or I guess explanation of what this what the book of nature is oh <clears throat> well alright this, this is a very very old uh, idea uh, and it actually comes out of the book of Genesis in the Bible okay uh, 
starting with the opening words, you know, and God said, let there be light. He didn't actually say, uh, suppose we have some light here, guys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, what apparently went on was God spoke light, and the word light and the, the uh, actual event were one and the same. Okay. So the entire creation was regarded as uh, speech. Right. A, a spoken text. And uh, from that comes the idea of the two books, the book of uh, uh, Revelation that has been written down, and the book of nature, which was spoken directly. And has manifested as actual nature. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, if you, this is the creation, and uh, uh, so the creation was a speech, uh-huh. but the speech didn't, it wasn't a syntactical thing of subject, verb, predicate, object, direct, and indirect, and so on. Um, the, the speeches, in this case, or the words, uh, were uh, huge amounts of things all at once. Uh, and I guess if you listen to it, the sound would be very much like that of the Big Bang. Uh-huh. Well, that's funny you bring up the Big Bang because um, in in my own research and, and bringing my audio and music background to to this area, um, I, I call it the Big Ping. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? One ping only. Give me a ping, Vasily. One ping only, please. What the hell is this about? Instead of calling it the Big Bang, I call it the Big Ping. P- oh, okay. P-I-N-G. <laughs> like a gotcha, sonar. yeah. Um, you know, you could quite easily swap out those two words. Um, well, the comeback is Pong. There you go, yes. You get com- ping pong. Exactly. I think of it almost like as an impulse, that, mm-hmm. like just a sonic impulse that has... Um, and I like to use the terminology borrowed from sound synthesis, just using an actual... A sound envelope, if you will. Yeah. And it's attack, decay, sustain, and release. Mm-hmm. Um, and where the Big Bang itself was the attack, and now we're kind of in a 14 billion year release, if you will. Yeah. You know there. And it's full of reverberation and echo. Oh, yes, and very, and lots of harmonics, too. And, mm-hmm. and I think I've always found it very easy. And as soon as science has kind of arrived at this area of saying, oh, actually, everything is these vibrating strings and mm-hmm. they've used an enormous amount of abstract math to arrive at this conclusion although all they had to do was look at ancient Greek <laughs> text to see that this is an idea that has been around for quite some time Oh, heavens, yes. Yes. In the arts. In the arts, too. Yes, and my line of thinking is just that if this book of nature is readable is it something that is perceived more musically if you will, in that the way in which media as an extension of man has manifested in. And I know that you and and your father seem to use the term media very broadly to basically describe any human engineer technology. Is that is that fair? Sure. Okay. Um, 
The word media is an ambigram. Indeed it is. And I, I, I riffed on that a little bit in my paper that you read. <laughs> um, but anyway, if we're gonna take the alphabet, for example, and just and the and the human intelligence that that gave rise to an alphabet, to me it doesn't seem far-fetched to, uh, to assume that that intelligence is just a very, very high partial on that initial impulse. Isn't it a weird impulse, when you think about it, to take one kind of experience and translate it into another kind of experience? Indeed. Why, in heaven's name, would you want to take uh, something that was made for the ear Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and translate it into a very abstract sense, the eye? Right. Because with the ear, you get vibrations, you get feelings, you get movement, you get touch, you get kinesis, as well as hearing. Uh, but when you write it down, there's only one sense responding, the eye. Correct. And you can close your eyes. Right. But it's the only sense with lids. You don't have ear lids. <laughs> right. It is the only sense with lids. Yeah. The okay. only one you can turn on and off. All the others are on. 24-7. Right, and the ears offer, you know, 360-degree perception, like yeah. the acoustic awareness. Uh-huh. Yes. And touch is that way. And it's interesting because um, I, I first encountered some of these ideas of, you know, uh, well, I think I, um, I brought it up to you in one of my first emails to you, this, the, the myth of, of Cadmus. Yeah. As the origin of the Greek and Phoenician alphabet. The alphabet, yeah. Right, and and this there's a great uh, excerpt. I I don't even remember which which Marshall McLuhan book it's from, but where he and I even quoted in my most recent episode, but where he talks about the significance of the teeth, yes, as an agent of power, mm-hmm. and how the this idea that we we derived this kind of linear literary mindset um, from, well, the most obvious source of that in modern times is something like the alphabet or, or just literal man versus electric man, like I've heard described before, is, you know, the literal man using their eyes to, to read um, a block of text from left to right, this very sequential kind of mm-hmm. uh, way of taking something in versus the uh, electric man, which is in an acoustic environment, like, Right, and obviously, <laughs> I don't need to explain this to you, but um, and but the 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 teeth um, being, if we're talking prehistorically, the only real kind of representation found in nature of this type of strict grid-like layout. Well, the thing about the teeth was they were repeatable. Uh huh. And. Uh, uh, the if you remember the myth, which is also an ambigram, because myths have always at least two levels. Yes, yes. Uh, but the myth of Cadmus went that he slew the dragon and then took the dragon's teeth and sowed them in the field. And they sprang up armed men and uh, founded a city. Now, how does the alphabet derive from that, though? That was always confusing to me in the myth. Well, because the teeth were uh, linear and repeatable, um, that you had not just pairs of teeth, but groups of teeth, and they were all the same. Okay. 
and that was about the only example there is. Similarly and, to, I guess, an, uh, you know, a soldier is repeatable, <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> well, in some ways, uh, the armed soldier is. If they have, let's say, spear carriers or bowmen or something or swordsmen, um, then there's a kind of repeatability there. But uh, before that, you just had a mob of guys. <laughs> sticks and, and bra- brass knuckles and whatnot. Uh, to go beat up on another mob of guys. Right. Uh, but with, uh, I think it was with the brass tools, uh, they started to make, and iron, um, they started to make weapons mm-hmm. uh, that were really indestructible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, in their time. Right. Um, and and then, then, they, then they got into uh, mounted combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a whole new range of weaponry. Right. Well, I think it's interesting too. Speaking of weaponry and 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 teeth, you know, the canine tooth is is the soldier of the teeth array, I guess, in a way. It's the it's it's the pointed sharp one. Yeah. Right. And it's even named after a dog. Absolutely. And growing up, an alternative career I could have had as a logo designer because I couldn't help but notice how just the, the with a, a few very basic line shapes, uh-huh. either either angled or curved, you had all of the, well, to use a term from Asian languages, radicals yeah. of the alphabet. And then starting to put this together, just using this teeth metaphor, I noticed, well, there's just this very interesting relationship between the way letters drawn with a curve versus letters letters drawn with harsh or sharp angles mm-hmm. and take on certain once once they start to form words you start and, and if you really do this type of in-depth etymology and tracing not only the etymology of a word within a single language but within a variety of languages mm-hmm. you start picking up on patterns that start to form that seem to not only correspond with the shapes of the letters that are making up the word but the sounds the phonemes associated with those shapes and the meaning of the words so, well, guess what? What you're talking right now is dead center of traditional grammar. I talked about the grammarian as the man of letters. Grammar always had two main interests. One is etymology, and the other is interpretation, reading and interpretation of texts. Um, radicals, by the way, are all etymologies, because the word radical is from the Latin word radix, which means a root. Oh, okay. Is that where the word radish comes from also? <laughs> that I don't know. You may have got me there. <laughs> that, that's a radical be... idea. <laughs> yes, it is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um... Roots uh, are one of the real secrets of language, and the man who knows the radicals in Chinese has has his hands on the formal properties of, of characters and of words. The characters in Chinese unite all of the arts, music, poetry, dance, painting, all of them come together in Chinese and Japanese characters. Okay, can you give an example of how that would occur? 
Well, let me see. The character is basically a very abbreviated image. It's a picture. And Chinese and Japanese writing, Japanese with the uh, characters, is a kind of cartoon strip. Uh-huh. It's a highly stylized, and it takes a bit of training to, to learn to read. Uh, but Ezra Pound, the poet, pointed out that with a good imagination and a little bit of practice, you could learn to read Chinese tolerably well. Not the subtleties of it, but you sure. could look at the characters and make your way through a text. Yes, especially if you knew the radicals. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it does strike me as, you know, once again, we come back to this word economy, and mm-hmm. it's almost as if, like you're saying, it's a comic strip, and, and a seasoned reader has that ability to contextually translate on the fly, or not translate, but just do their do etymology on the fly. Mm-hmm. And that's, but that I feel like that's something that uh, is, is is approachable with with Western uh, writing systems as well. It's just well, know. any any really good poet does exactly that with the language he's working with sure. or she. And another interesting thing that I've been looking at is also just the same the same approach to punctuation, yeah, right? as just another character that can can include meaning poetically. Well, punctuation, you know, is basically musical notation, right? Uh, telling you when to breathe. <laughs> yeah, telling you when to put in pauses, uh, when to raise or lower the pitch or the intonation of the voice, uh, and so on. How to how to shape a phrase. And the eye has to be moving uh, quite far ahead if you're if you're reading uh, if you're reading aloud. You have uh-huh. to be reading about a line or so with your eyes, about a line ahead of your voice. Right. So that you know how to f- work the musical phrase. Right. No, I mean it's just like sight reading, really. I'm, you're always a few beats ahead. It is sight reading. Yeah. It, yeah. Of course it is. <laughs> quite simply. What um, else? That's true. Um, so I was also, you, you have written uh, on James Joyce and Finnegan's Wake. Talk about ambigrams. Yes, that's one, well, Finnegan's Wake is one big ambigram, it seems. Well, it's not ambigram, it's polygram. Ah, and, and how yeah. would you? Well, ambi just means two. Oh, okay, I thought it meant. Or both. Okay, so it's a big polygram. Yeah. And, and, um, there, there isn't one or two level. Well, Joyce said that what the reader sees and what the reader he, hears will be two different things. Yes. Complementary, but uh, quite different. And uh, so which layer of meaning does he intend? All of them. Right. Including the ones the reader gets that he didn't think of. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's funny. It's, um, that's a question often raised. <clears throat> I mean, it's become very popular today for people to analyze symbolism of just popular films and music and television mm-hmm. shows. And sometimes it goes off a little bit into the deep end, into <laughs> far out conspiratorial stuff, which are still propositions not worthy of total dismissal necessarily. But a question that often comes up is surrounding artist intent how these are interpreted. And I just wanted to echo your point, and, and I agree that it's almost as if those interpretations that were never in the mind of the artist are just as valid, if, if not even more interesting. You know, it's funny that people get hung up on this idea of what did the writer intend. Uh, that's really irrelevant. 
I agree. When you come right down to it, it has no real function at all. After the guy's dead, you're left with the poem or the painting or the sculpture. Mm-hmm. And uh, what matters is what it does. Right. Not what the guy thought. He might have been thinking about his girlfriend or about what he was going to do that evening. or. Sure. Uh, this guy he owed 20 bucks to and how's he going to pay him back all the while he's chipping away at a block of stone mm-hmm. who cares what was in the mind of the uh, artist at the time it's irrelevant uh, you know they, the, re- the reader's interpretation of a poem may not only be quite different from the artist's idea of what he was doing it may even be better To be continued.